0: Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and for one of the few times, uh, we're opening with some classical music. We've got Debussy and, you'll have to forgive my pronunciation here, Prelude La Midi de Form. That's one of the highlights from the George Martin Painter in Sound, pre-Beatles productions and classical influences set that's part of the uh, Cherry Red family. And I've got the perfect podcast guest to talk me through the early period of George Martin's life, as well as his pre-Beatles productions. I've got one of the leading authorities on the Beatles and author of two of the acclaimed biographies of George Martin. The first being Maximum Volume, which features uh, George's early years, which covers this set as well, as well as sound pictures, which is uh, the post-1966 era. And of course, also host of Everything Fab for podcast. A huge
1: welcome, Ken Womack. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. And what a wonderful subject to discuss, especially after this uh, the release of this great new collection. This
0: is the influence element of the podcast, which we opened with. And You uh, write about George gravitating to the upright piano and and playing things like
1: chopsticks. So from an early year, he had a real aptitude for music. Absolutely, and it's uh, you know in in a lot of ways, it's just a wonder uh, that he's able to get to music in the first place, right? Given his background and uh, really the social standing and class of the family, but fortunately, they had an uncle who worked in a piano factory.
0: Those that know about George Martin a bit more know this, but certainly the image he projected was very upper middle class, but actually he was, from his family background, really working class. And this also was in the post-Depression era as well. So not much money was going around either.
1: No. And his father, who was a master carpenter, like a lot of folks, spent many of those depression years out of work and uh, unable to to eke out a living. Uh, His wife had to, uh, of course, supplement their income. And when George gets back from the war, he does what a lot of guys did This at this point in time in the post-war world, and, and certainly not limited to Great Britain either. He remade himself. He plotted a new course for his life. And um, this was, uh, again, it was not unheard of. George just happened to refashion his voice and his accent. And, and of course, it went great guns for him. In his teen years, he... It was involving amateur dramatics, but also
0: we opened with Debussy. He saw the BBC Symphony Orchestra
1: playing Debussy, and, and that was a, a real moment just the sheer beauty of what music could do. Absolutely. It was the performance uh, conducted by Sir Adrian Bolt, and it just blew him away. He had no idea that this was possible, uh, that human beings could do this, could make such sweet music, and it changed him forever. He
0: left school, he was involved in uh, the postroom of the war office, but ultimately
1: ended up joining the, the Royal Navy. That's right, the Fleet Air Arm. He had um, always imagined himself uh, having some kind of career, perhaps in aeronautics. I don't think he knew how he would get there. But, uh, of course, the armed services seemed to offer that kind of pathway um, he had been fascinated by the Royal Air Force and um, the Fleet Air Arm seemed like a, a really wonderful path for him of course he joins the war effort very young and very late too in, in 1944 when he was 18 but it proves to be transformative over and over again in his life
0: certainly so after leaving the forces he gravitated to music college
1: he did but it of course he he had help. Uh, in the terms of the personage of of the man he called his fairy godfather, right, who was always looking out for him, had been during the war. You know, when we think about the war effort, whether it's the war effort today in our digital era or the war effort back in those days, um, you know, folks tend to lend a hand with the uh, the folks who are off risking their lives for our nations. And in this case, it was a fellow named Sidney Harrison who really looked out for George, uh, had taught him some musical notation uh, via correspondence during the war. And then after the war, um, used his influence to find space for George to attend the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. July
0: 1950, when he graduated, and it doesn't seem that long, basically, the span of the summer before
1: he was um, joining Parlophone. That's right. In fact, uh, it was uh, an interview that, once again, um, Sidney Harrison, I guess in his final act on behalf of George, made possible, and uh, and that was to to get that interview with a fellow named Oscar Preuss. and uh, Oscar was head of that what they called the third label, the lowest rung on the EMI. Uh, hierarchy yeah because you mentioned that third label so above that you've got
0: columbia which was the real popular one then you've got his master's voice so parlophone seemed to be under that and it had like orchestral works jazz dance
1: bands at the time that's right and it was a it was an eclectic mix right i mean you know mark lewison when we were first talking about this years ago and i was talking about this project he said to me, you know, don't be fooled. Sure, it was uh the least profitable label, it was eclectic. Yes, they threatened to mothball the thing, but at the same time, right, it was the interesting place where sounds could be shared and heard uh that might not have had a shot otherwise.
0: Absolutely. And as uh, George found his foot in, he began to sign artists off his own back as he became established in. And- One of the pivotal figures that he collaborated was Ron Goodwin in in that era as well. And I think he recorded
1: hundreds of times with many different artists with Ron. He does. And we need to remember, too, in that time, and and the new collection of George's music really underscores this well, that is that during that period, you had the great band leaders. And Ron was an expert arranger and band leader. And so for George, this was a collaboration that gave him space to make new music and, and to do so in a hurry. Consequently, they were putting out lots and lots of material during those days at Parlophone.
0: And this was the time when George was acquainted himself with the Abbey Road spaces from Studio 1 to 2 and 3, and the dynamics and size
1: of those studios varied depending on what type of session he worked on. Yeah, and he was cutting his teeth in so many ways, Right. Almost firsthand, um, <laughs> as he was doing the jobs, as he was working for Preuss at first, and then later, when he succeeded Preuss as head of the label, no one thought he would succeed. But of course, as we know, he does, and admirably, and of course, uh, creates a, a whole space for for comedy at EMI. But he learns the ins and outs of the studio. I I was there with Ken Townsend a few years ago, and we were we were walking the halls and. We finally got into one of those, those front rooms you can see that have windows looking out onto Abbey Road. And he said, well, this is where George sat. It <laughs> sat right there in the front. He said he, this was his window. He could look out on the car park. It's easy to imagine George, particularly in his younger days when you know he barely knows what EMI stands for and he's trying to make a career. Just very exciting times uh, as he began to really create a space for himself in the music that he wanted to bring to rock and roll because he wanted an act of his own. He always had his eyes set on the pop charts. The example that we give
0: here of of Skiffling Strings, which is George recording with uh, Ron Goodwin and his orchestra, is an interesting one in that it was uh, an idea of making a skiffle-type record but with an orchestral arrangement.
1: Yes, and, uh, you know, it was a natural move, right? He wanted to blend his talents and his education. After all, he had studied for three years at the Guildhall. Uh, He had studied arrangement and adaptation uh, etc. And so this was a natural for him, was to bring these sounds together and as we also know, it would come in handy later.
0: Again, I'm not sure how many people know this but Skiffling Strings was renamed Swinging
1: Sweethearts and released in America and became quite a notable hit. Right, and, and of course it taught him very significantly about the timelessness of certain sounds and certain genres, right? Uh, that you could blend them And create lasting melodies. And so, so much of this great work is done in advance of the Beatles. And yet, once they come into his orbit and they bring their talent and musicianship, which of course grows by leaps and bounds almost by the day, if not the week or the month, he's able to bring in these elements and experiences to their world. And that's when they start to create something really extraordinary.
0: Talking about Palaf on the label, the variety and the different types of music, as well as starting to talk about George using the studio. And this next example is a a really good example of that. So we've got Peter Ustinov, Mock Mozart, which was released in 1953. He had very little tracks, was able to layer the sounds and create something that
1: was more adventurous given the, the very limitations of the studio. It was, and, and of course, the backstory is just charming about this song. You know, he... A song, for lack of a better word, it's a concoction, and as you said... It has a a very limited sound palette in terms of the real estate in the studio he can use to create it. Of course, Ustinov is having just a wonderful time (laughs) creating these voices and sounds. But what's so remarkable and charming about it is the way that he sort of goes headfirst into this project and really pushes it. And he sort of goes without permission for a little bit, which is kind of a knack uh, that he had for how he'd approach a lot of things. He kind of barreled forward before he even went to what they call the monthly meeting, where you would talk about all of the new releases. And it was really his chance to test out this idea. And of course, uh, it would uh, pay dividends later when he would work with other comedians. But what a, what a fantastic moment. And it was a, no- a moment that proved that George was right about uh, the coming appetite for satire and uh, for this kind of spoken word, humor, recorded music, et cetera.
0: This was the start of that era where those comedy records and different types of comedy records with the experimentation really started to come to the fore. So although Mock Mozart didn't sell that many copies, it was a great example of George using the studio in different ways with an aspect
1: of the music industry that was very, very big at the time or, or would become big. Yeah, and, and you know, when you listen to Mark Mozart, which may sound primitive to our ears today. But when you listen to it, and I I love teaching work like this to my students because what we're able to do, even though comedy is not timeless and they may not be laughing out loud at at this and feeling like it's side-splitting comedy in our current day, what is interesting, um, and I, I believe always will be, is the fact that what George is engaged in when he makes records like this especially with very limited technology, is problem-solving, right? He is trying to – he has an idea. He and Ustinov have a collaboration and some ideas about how they want this music to sound. And the studio is limited. They realize that. They're working inside specific limitations, and yet they do it anyway. And I imagine – and I know this to be true, right – the most fun he was having with this was the fact that they were figuring out how to do it. And that's exciting, right? When you're, you're solving a problem and you're bringing the vision, the sound vision in your head into being. And uh, you can just tell when you listen to this, they're having a wonderful time doing it. The
0: early era of music was where the producer would just replicate a group playing live. And this was an, a great example
1: of that painter in sound concept. It is. And remember, he came up with that idea of sound pictures. Uh, he had crafted it thinking about the impressionists and about the notion of the kind of art that they would make. And for him, it was a good metaphor for what you could do. Uh, what you could do in the recording studio. And of course, we've all benefited from his experimentation.
2: Son ferato, questi non mi è nient'o frata. E un non mezzo va pasticcio e il forvide a brenda li ho Olio non feriata frappa la porta, che sovraiodoro no, e la commendatoria non si è gata niente niente. Oh, andio sovrettore, oh Dio mio, non si fa silenzio, amore. Ah, ah, ah. Noi sparite in questo, e rimanda via. Spirito, spirito, a Maserati, al Far Romeo. Bene, 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 la vita Roma, Napoli, Milano, Torino, Gentiloni, Blairi, Pem, Lari, Pem, La porta è chiusa. Oh Dio, also- not- Tu padre qui. Mussolini Graziani qui. Mussolini Graziani qui. Ciao, scaccia. grande carnevale, o oh, bella carnevale, o oh, ah, oh, no. oh, no. Festival! o oh, gioia oh, no. antenale, o oh, benito, 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 oh, benito, benito, bene, benito, benito. Viva! Viva! benito, 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 benito,
3: benito,
0: And next, we have a figure that is very familiar in Beatles lore. We have Dick James and Robin Hood. Dick, who eventually went into music industry, made his name as a singer in his own right. And this was
1: an example of him collaborating with George. That's right. And yes, Dick would be a person he would turn to when he sort of wanted to take the business of publishing outside of EMI for the Beatles and to make sure Uh, that he was looking after their interests. But yeah, Dick, of course, had been involved with um, the hit television show. And the song, of course, was a hit unto itself. And they had a lot of fun making the sound of those arrows at the end, and figuring out a way to replicate that with the limited, again, the limited technology of the studio.
0: Yeah, because I think he was using um, a wooden ruler to get that
1: arrow sound, I think. That's right. So he could get that reverberation, the sound of arrows, you know, hitting their target and and reverberating. <laughs> you can hear it's a, a lot of fun, the sound of school children on, on that record as well. That's right. And George loved that. He loved, you know, giving all sorts of folks, the opportunity to participate in the enterprise of making this song. And it led to some of the song's success, the idea of these kids, you know, having fun and making music and and sharing in in the process. But uh, (laughs) it's one of his hallmarks, and it would become a hallmark of the Beatles, too, to create a kind of event out of the moment. If you're going to bring folks in to do something that they don't normally do, you know, have at it. <laughs> and he would often do this. He would often look for, for ways for folks to share in the experience. I mean, take for example, February 1967 when they're recording a day in the life and uh oh the orchestra's there and they're participating in something momentous. And uh George was always wonderfully cognizant of those sorts of things.
0: And that song and and the ITV series remained popular for for many, many decades later here, here in the UK. And actually, there's another Beatles link in that uh, Peter Asher and his sister Jane actually made their TV debuts in that program as well.
1: That's right. And by the same token, right, everybody is, uh, you know, if you're a kid in those days, you're watching, you know, you're watching these shows. And and those include kids named John, Paul, George and Ringo, right? <laughs> they were familiar with this kind of work and they must have just been uh, blown away when they learned about how George created those sounds.
4: Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the glen Robin Hood, Robin Hood, with his band of men Feared by the bad, loved by the good Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Robin Hood He called the greatest archers to a tavern on the green They vowed to help the people of the king They handled all the trouble on the English country scene And still found plenty of time to sing Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the glen Robin Hood, Robin Hood, with his band of men Feared by the bad, loved by the good Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Robin Hood Well, children, would you all like to join in with me?
2: Yes!
4: Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the glen. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, with his band of men. Feared by the bad, loved by the good. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Robin Hood. He came to Sherwood Forest with a feather in his cap. A fight and ever looking for a fight. His bow was always ready and he kept his arrows sharp. He used them to fight for what was right. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the glen. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, with his band of men.
0: So by the late 50s, the comedy records really started to come to the fore. We have an example here that was released in 1961 with uh, Irene Handel and Peter Sellers' Shadows on the Grass. And again, this is an example where you've got comedic spoken word elements, but then you've got almost a filmic soundstage that enabled George to really paint
1: the scene. Yes. And I like the the sort of cinematic uh, reference you make there because he was very conscious of being able to create images in the mind. You know, you take, for example, Unchained Melody, right? Sellers, where they create this madcap version of this this mega hit and they have a ball doing it. George loved clearly loved doing that kind of work and being able to create those sounds in the studio. And obviously the Beatles would learn this track, this gift too. you know, we have the new release of, of revolver. You can hear yellow submarine and, and all those wonderful sound effects that they just had a blast recording, but I don't know that enough work has been done, even exploring the role of of what George did in, particularly in the nineteen fifties, the late nineteen fifties, in creating this space for comedy and particularly the kind of satire that folks like Sellers uh, Sellers would carry out. And of course, by the early nineteen sixties, we've got a full fledged satire boom taking place, right? It's called the British satire boom. uh, And it's on the heels of the angry young man movement. And folks like George were helping to create a home for some of the great comedy of the world that will become influential You know, you can draw a line right on through the present day from a lot of the work that they're doing there. You know, a lot of what Sellers did in his kind of darkly comedic way was to take the sacred cows of culture and skewer them. (laughs) Unfailingly, you know, he would be in there taking stories, literature, great songs and great art and without uh, fear. Uh, fearlessly, <laughs> he would uh, he would satirize them. And again, George helped create the firmament for that place. You can really
0: hear or you can really see how George was starting to challenge himself or learn more in the studio. I think with Shadows on the Grass, for example, the original version of it was almost 12 minutes and George and his engineer were pairing that back, having it in time. So you working on material like this was just the perfect grounding for the more experimentation and, and working with tape later that he did with the Beatles. That's
1: right. and I'm glad you mentioned it in that way because to do this kind of work in that studio at that time, we all know... How austere the studio was, how formal life could be at Abbey Road Studios. And here's George, just like you said making this 12-minute version of a track. I mean, people, Ken Townsend has told me, people would get in trouble from the studio heads. He got in trouble and a bit of a talking to for creating artificial double tracking in 1966. You know, we, we don't do these sorts of things, you know? Uh, so George making a, uh, a lengthy opus like that was taking a bit of a risk, you know? It was something that was going to be noticed by the powers that be at, at EMI, but... But he knew it was essential to trying to capture these visions uh, that were in his head in certainly Seller's head and, and the other goons. That's the, the essence of art.
5: Hello. <laughs> I've been watching you. I say I've been watching you feeding the birds. (laughs) I think you're marvellous. Aren't they sweet? Yes, sir. I don't know how anyone can be cruel to dumb animals, do you? I think it's worse than murder because they can't speak. Excuses some somewhat crude attire, won't you? (laughs) (laughs) I was catching up with my sunbathing, hasn't it been gorgeous?
6: Beautiful weather, we have
5: Yes, because I've tan a lot faster in a bikini, you know. (laughs) But where's the use of frightening everybody to death? (laughs) My
6: goodness, you would not frighten me because when I saw you first I said to myself, my goodness, what a beautiful woman. I would so very much like to know such a woman of beauty. Oh,
5: now I'll call that truly gallant. Shall I get up and take a bow?
6: (laughs) (laughs) Please take one, by all means.
5: (laughs) You come here often, do you? (laughs) Well, I
6: come here quite often, as I said to feed these birds. Yes. because I love the open air. Well, it's
5: very nice, isn't it? I mean, it's private without being insulated, if you know what I mean. I can see you're like me. I will not go into a public park and mingle with a hoi-polloi.
6: I quite agree. <gasps> I like to keep myself, to myself.
5: Oh, aren't there some shocking people about? It? I mean, even here. Well, there's one woman at our hotel. Well, she's more of a person, really. Yeah. She's... Fascinates me. (laughs) Really? You know, anything in trousers she graviates to, I think you scum. How plural can you get? And then they wonder, you know, that they end up as exhibit A.
6: I'm so lonely, you know, that I want to have conversation with you or someone. Ah,
5: well, (laughs) you've only yourself to blame, you know, because I can never resist a true gentleman. (laughs) My Jove, are they hard to come by nowadays? I should know. I was married straight out of the schoolroom, you know, to the most perfect gentleman that ever trod the earth. I can see him now. On our wedding day the tears was rolling down his face. He was so conscious of his trust he'd promised Pops and Mama. Of course they thought the world's of me you know. He'd promised Pops and Mama that I should never want my Jove I never did. He gave me the most smashing home in Avalon Avenue. Do you know Dawson at all?
6: Uh, No no I don't.
5: Oh well they call it the Frinton of East 8 so that'll give you some my dear, everything a woman's heart could yearn for.
6: He has uh, obviously left oh, you very well uh, yes. off uh, like oh, that with he, money,
5: Well, anything. yes, he did, but mind you, I've got the ample means to buy a splendid home any time I wish. Mm. It was Tufnell's one prayer to leave me comfortably off, but... I'm
6: very pleased I to mean, hear
5: that. They do me very well, you know, at my hotel. Do you know the Royal it's very, very select and the manager is a charming chappy, Bill Oakshart, you know, ex Naval type and the staff's charming too I'm afraid they spoil me thoroughly, you know. They give me a huge <laughs> double room on the first floor with a private bath attached. Oh well it's almost equally as good as private because all the others are the royal snip business tapes, you know. They're almost always gone before yours truly has even opened her eyes. Oh. <laughs> yes. I'm afraid I'm a bit of a naughty girl like that. <laughs> I love to in my beddy by dreaming my dreams.
6: I wish that I could share your dreams with you.
5: <laughs> now that I did not hear. That... I have decided completely to ignore. You're not nice to know, you know. (laughs) I'm so sorry.
6: I'm I'm so full of enthusiasm to have your friendship, to receive great pleasure from knowing you that I said a stupid thing like that. Forgive me. I'm so very sorry.
5: Oh, well, you're forgiven. I was just going to ask you back to Dindin's when the. <laughs>
6: well, I would love to come. Please ask me. They like keep really...
5: a smashing table at the Royalston, you know. We really? nearly always have a second vegetable and always croutons with a soup. And if you ever feel like having half a bottle of Borgiolet, they practically fall over themselves backwards, bringing it in for you. I always say, as long as there's enough to see me out, what happens afterwards, it's San fear Oh, you
6: speak French.
5: Un petit peu. <laughs> oh,
6: but you have got a very fine accent, oh, you know. Oh,
5: you, your blue eyes.
6: <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I, mean it. Listen, uh, say this with me. Say this with me. We will speak French together. Are you ready? Yes. Voulez-vous?
5: Voulez-vous?
6: Coucher avec moi ce soir.
5: <gasps> oh! Oh, you rotten egg. Oh. <laughs> I'll set Bill shot onto you. Oh,
6: you know what it means. You know what it means. You're a woman of the world.
5: <laughs> oh, come on. Let's go over to my hotel and have a talk. I'd
6: like to come and stand closer to you. But... <laughs>
5: what are you doing? <laughs> oh,
6: no, nothing. Listen, I don't even know your name, you know.
5: Well, shall I tell you a very private name that Tufnil kept for me? Please, please. He used to call me Squidgy. Oh no! Squidgy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you think that's sweet?
6: It's beautiful for you. It fits you so perfectly.
5: Do you like this shade of blue?
6: Yes. Uh, wh- what is uh, what is this? It's
5: called Blue Toast. Oh. Tavnell used to go crackers about me and anything blue. He used to say, Squidgy buy herself a blue nightie, make her eyes look like stars. Oh.
6: That is so sad, so beautiful.
5: I believe you're jealous. Oh.
6: <laughs> come along, come along. <laughs> now, shall we? What
5: are you doing? Oh,
6: <laughs> I'm nothing. I'm just helping you from your deck chair. Well, <laughs> oh. pick my back up
5: then. All right.
6: Come, let us go to your hotel.
5: Yeah,
6: I don't belong to you yet. You oh, know. I'm
5: so pleased that I had the, the chance
6: of
2: meeting you, you know. It's a
0: So next, we've got the Vipers Skiffle Group and Don't You Rock Me, Daddy-O. So George was also had his ear out for new sounds. And um, he got a tip to go down to the Two Eyes Coffee Bar in Soho to hear the, the Vipers. And he was actually, I think, one of the first people to actually sign a skiffle
1: band. That's right. And part of what made George work so well and so hard was he was a very competitive person. His sons have told me, both of them that he's, he's competitive, you know, he was competitive inside the family, he was competitive with them. Not that he wasn't supportive, but, you know, he's a guy who likes to be out there making discoveries, being right. And uh, <laughs> George, for the longest time, and particularly after uh, he watched his colleague Nori Paramore land so much success with Cliff Richard, George really saw the writing on the wall uh, with popular music and where it was going, He was a student of of the songs that were hits. He would follow the trade papers and learn about what songs and artists were hits in the United States so he could import those sounds before others got ahead of him. The Vipers are a great example of George working so hard to stay ahead of the curve.
0: And a top 10 hit with Don't You Rock Me, Daddy-O as well. So this is commercial material. This
1: stuff is selling. Oh, it absolutely is. And, uh, And he recognizes that you know, he's the conduit for it. Um, he's the person who is is taking the risk and uh, bringing these ideas to the charts and bringing these ideas to EMI, which will be one of the reasons he clashes with them later, right? Yeah, and
0: a really interesting uh, element that that you write about in Maximum Volume that tickled me was that um, the Viper's career was halted when uh, their single Maggie Mae was banned by the BBC. So a, a tenuous Beatle link there, really. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you're right <laughs> uh yeah and you know think about it that didn't stop George and the Vipers from taking this risk I don't know maybe in retrospect they they might wish that they hadn't um you know who's to say uh how their world was going to go but absolutely is that's a great one
7: <laughs> now me and my wife went to time. Hey! Ooh. Don't see rock me, daddy Don't see rock Oh, don't see Oh, not Don't see oh. daddy she tried the green, she tried the red. Say away, away. i have a that's what she says. Say away, lady. Say away. don't see it up, daddy. Oh. Oh, don't see up, daddy. Oh. Oh, don't see daddy. don't see daddy. don't see daddy. Oh, don't daddy. don't Well, she put one on and it looked a treat. Say, hey, lady, say, hey, lady, say hey, hey, lady found another man to meet. Say hey, lady say Now hey, lady, hey. don't you rock me, daddy Oh, don't me, daddy Don't me, daddy daddy Oh, don't me, daddy Oh, no, 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 me daddy, oh. No, don't, don't you oh. oh, rock me, daddy oh. Oh, don't you rock me, daddy now, Mister Lee, my girl alone. Sail away, lady, sail away. she gets what she wants at home. Sail away, lady, sail away. Now don't she not me, daddy she daddy she me, daddy me, daddy Oh, don't oh she rock me, daddy. Oh, no don't she, she me, I'm going upstairs to pack my trunk. Say away, lady, say away. Home, find a bar and get me drunk. Say away, lady, say daddy oh, Don't she daddy oh, Don't she me, oh, Don't she me, no, Don't she me, <laughs> nah, Don't she
0: So we've had skiffle. And now we've got an example of George working on early British rock and roll. And around that time, George finds Jim Dale. And this is the single, Don't Let Go. So again, George had his ear out for new
1: sounds and uh, finding artists to fulfill that. He certainly did. And, And George, of course, prided himself on his ear for vocalists. Who sounded like a front man, for example? Or who has the propensity to to carry a group with their pipes? And so, of course, as we know, that was one of his first issues with the Beatles, trying to figure out who would be the guy until he realized he didn't need to worry about that in in their particular case. But yeah, Jim Dale is a a good example of George ferreting out a strong voice that they can take to the bank. And uh, I I enjoy the Jim Dale collaboration very much and that part of George's story.
0: And it wasn't that Jim Dale wasn't successful. I think another of his singles, Be My Girl, was a significant hit, I think, number two. But it was Jim Dale's manager that scuppered that, which showed the range of factors and and people that were involved that that
1: come together to to make a sustainable career or scupper a career. That's right. And and of course, George learned many lessons uh, over the years about the external factors or the sometimes internal, closely related factors That could impinge upon a person's ability to have success, not to mention just the fickleness of the music charts, right? And anything that might be happening in that world. So, (laughs) but he prided himself on being right. Uh, And sometimes he could be a little curmudgeonly about this kind of need to be a visionary, to see things and to be right about something. But when you look at George's record, nine times out of 10, he was correct. He used to say Brian Epstein would give him so much credit as a hit maker, and George Martin would be quick to poo-poo that. And I understand that. But what he did better than anybody during this period, and and so so very well, was create arrangements that he knew in the right the right circumstances could be hits. And of course, he would call that, and and the industry calls that head arrangement. Finding the right sound, the right structure for a song, you know, leading. Um, what can't buy me love off with can't buy me loves chorus and knowing that that's the way to create the hit there. And, and George was right at it.
8: So it's ten o'clock. Don't let go, don't let go. Come on, baby, it's time to rock. Don't let go, don't let go. I'm so happy I got you here. Don't let go, yeah. Don't let go. Keeps me grinning from ear to ear. Don't let go, don't let go. Ooh, mm, this feeling's killing me. Oh, shucks. well I would stop for a million bucks. I love you so just to hold me tight and don't let go Thunder, lightning, wind and rain. Don't let go, don't let go. Love is storming inside my brain. Don't let go, don't let go. I'm so eager I'm nearly dying. Don't let go, yeah. don't let go. You've been keeping your lips from mine. Don't let go, don't let go. Mmm, this feeling's killing me. Oh, shit! Well, I wouldn't stop for a million bucks I love you so but Just go hold whole and don't let go wound dog out barking upside the hill Don't let go! Don't let go! Love is dragging him through the mill Don't let go! Don't let go! If it, it wasn't for having you Don't let go! Don't let go! I'd be barking and howling too Don't let go! Yeah. Don't let go! Mm, this feeling's killing me oh well i wouldn't stop for a million bucks i love you so just hold me tight and don't let go one day baby you'll quit me yet don't let go don't let go i'll be crying and soaking wet don't let go don't let go one thing baby i'll never Stand. Don't let go. Mm. Don't let go. Your lips kissing some other man. Don't let go. Yeah. Don't let go. Ooh wee. Hmm. This feeling's killing me. Oh, shut. Well, I wouldn't oh, stop for a million bucks. I love you so. I just behold hold me tight. Don't let go. Hold me tight. Don't let go. Hold me tight. Don't let go. Yeah. Don't let go.
0: We had Peter Sellers earlier. We've got Peter again, this time with Sophie Loran and probably my favourite track from the Painter in Soundboxer and it's the wonderful Goodness Gracious Me. And I didn't know until I read um, your book Maximum Volume on, on George that um, he actually asked the writers, uh, David Lee and Herbert Kretzmer, to specifically write this song to uh, get on the, the soundtrack of the film The
1: Millionaires. And think about that for a moment, right? That's brilliant. <laughs> it really is. That is uh, just a great example of the kind of war- the on- kind of entrepreneurialism that would save uh, that would save Parlophone when it needed it the most. Um, George was brilliant to come up with that idea. Why not piggyback on the soundtrack? Loren was hot. Sellers was on his way, if not already there. He's a crossover actor, of course, comedian, etc. So. It was just a brilliant example of cross-marketing and taking advantage of the moment, you know, giving people different versions of a similar product. And he will do that uh, with great success again and again. But it's a very good early example of, of what he was able to do there.
0: And another top 10 hit. So by 1960, you know, we started in those early years and, and George joining Powerphone, But around the turn of the
1: 60s, George was a significant figure in, in the UK music industry. He was, and you know, when you when you look back at those times, and when you read George's um, various attempts at autobiography, it's interesting how he doesn't quite see that. Have you noticed that that he mm. almost doesn't realize that he is a man of some influence, that he is uh, that he has achieved something, uh, and that the industry has taken notice of the good works that he has done in in making a success uh, out of Parlophone. I mean, it was no secret that they were going to uh, dismantle it at one point, that there was a plan in the offing. So uh, it's interesting that George sometimes couldn't see that. And it was often because he would look to someone, again, like a Nori Paramore and compare himself uh, to Nori. He always felt a little bit older than everybody else, given his years in the service, et cetera. Uh, and, and having gone to school, of course, I think that sometimes would put on a kind of blind spot for him because you're right to point out, he was a man of influence people were noticing him, but, uh, there's that, that sad moment, right. When, uh, he recounts his first number one, his first pure pop number one, which was with the trad jazz group, right. The temperance seven. Mm-hmm. And he's almost embarrassed by it. Like that's not how he meant for it to happen. But uh, like you said, (laughs) he wasn't an unknown quantity then. He was someone um, whom people admired uh, and even saw, to use a term from our own day, as an influencer.
3: Oh, doctor, I'm in trouble.
1: Well,
6: goodness gracious me.
3: For every time a certain man is standing next to me, mm-hmm. a flush comes to my face and my pulse begins to race. It goes boom, boody, boom, boody, oh. boom, boody, boom, boody, boom, boody, boom, boody, boom boom, boom, boom goody boom. Goody boom, boody, boom, boody, boom, boody, boom.
9: Well,
6: goodness gracious me. How often does this happen? When did the trouble start? You see, my stethoscope is bobbing. Do the throbbing of your heart.
3: What kind of man is he to create this allergy? It goes boom, boody boom, boody boom, boody boom, boody boom, boody boom, boody boom, boody, boom, booy, boom. Boom. Boom, boody boom, boody boom, boody boom.
9: Well, goodness gracious me.
6: From your deli to Darle, I have done my share of evil. And I've never yet been beaten or outboxed. I remember that with one jab of my knee in the
3: Punjab, how I cleared up berry, berry, and the dreaded dysentery. But your complaint has got me really. Fast. Oh! Oh Doctor, touch my fingers. Well, goodness gracious me. You may be very clever, but however can't you see my heart beats much too much at a certain tender touch. It goes boom, boody, boom, boody, boom, boody, boom, boody, boom, boody, boom, boody, boom, 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 boom. I like it. Boom, boody, boom, boody, boom, boody, boom.
6: Well, goodness gracious me. Can I see your tongue? Nothing the matter with it. Put it away, please.
3: Maybe it's my back. Maybe it's. Shall is. I lie down? Yes. Ah.
6: My initial diagnosis rules out measles and thrombosis, sleeping sickness, and as far as I can tell, influenza, inflammation, grooping, cough, and night nice stargation. And you'll be so glad to hear that both your eyeballs are so
3: Put two and two together, if you have eyes to see, the face that makes my possess race is right in front of me. Oh, there is nothing I can do, For my heart is jumping through. Oh, we We go boom, boody 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 boom, boom, boody boom, boody boom, boody boom, (laughs) goodness gracious, how old Goodness gracious. How flirtatious. Goodness gracious. It is me. It is you. I, I,
0: I'm sorry, it is us. Ah. And you mentioned the temperance seven. You're driving me crazy. So that was his first number one, but it was kind of tinged with mixed feelings for George, as, as you say, because it wasn't necessarily the way he wanted to get to number one with something that harked
1: back 40 years. That's right. You know, I have to say, I play that every semester in my um, my popular music courses because if you go back to 1961, listen, I and all of your listeners, I your homework assignment today is to go listen to that recording again and again and take special notice of the care George Martin puts into that recording. It is crystal clear. Listen to the tuba, for example. It is fabulous. And you can flash forward, fast forward, whatever you want to do, right to the Beatles, and it's that same level of care that he would put into their recordings. And why, when you listen to the Beatles today, they're still the standouts. Because George worked like a dog on those sounds to make sure that nothing left his earshot that wasn't perfect. And that little recording is just a lot of fun but it's also exceedingly well done.
0: And another great example of George having a huge hit with what were crazies or musical phases at the time, you've know, had skiffle, we've had rock and roll, trad jazz. And when you look at where the Beatles were in the era that they they were around when all those crazies were coming in, and I think the the cavern was mainly trad jazz before things started to turn around.
1: Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And of course, at one point, George Harrison remembers them being mocked Because they weren't playing jazz in the cavern. But yeah, in in the Temperance Seven would be uh, cavern dwellers (laughs) in their own right. You know, I I was thinking about the cavern earlier when you mentioned how folks tended to think of pop acts as as simply live concoctions. You know, what could they reproduce live? And of course, initially, that was George Martin's plan, right? Was to uh, record their first album, basically by doing a live record in the cavern and fortunately they turned away from that uh which got their learning curve started toward what we know it will become which is coming up with all of these great original recordings in the studio
10: left me sad and lonely Why did you leave me lonely? Cause here's a heart that's only for Nobody but you I'm burning like a flame, dear I'll never be the same, dear I'll always place the blame, dear On nobody but you You You're driving me crazy What did I do? Oh, what did I do? My tears for you Make everything easy Clouding a sky of blue How true were the friends who were near me To cheer me believe me They knew that you were the kind who would hurt me Desert me when I needed you You, you're driving me What did I do?
0: that i'm really impressed with george his ear the example here being matt Monroe, the single my kind of girl but again reading about george matt just doing a demo recording preparing the peter seller's album songs for swinging sellers and george hearing matt suddenly realizing what is a great voice
1: the realizing that he could actually work with him on more popular material yeah, I love the Matt Monroe story because, again, he ferreted out this talent, but it also shows that we we know that he is thinking like a good businessman who's trying to keep his very closely watched label on a sound footing, on a profit-making basis. And he hears Monroe and he takes his shot and, of course, has some success there. It's such a great example of, of how he'll be entrepreneurial with the Beatles and then later with Air. It's a, such an instructive aspect of his personality
0: I was fascinating to read as well That some of George's songwriting efforts And I think one of them was a, a Matt Munro hit Was under the
1: nom de plume Graham Fisher <laughs> That's right uh, and, and of course uh, one of his, uh, his several nom de plumes She
9: walks Like an angel walks She talks Like an angel talks And her hair Has a kind of curl To my mind She's my kind of girl She's wise like an angel's wise With eyes Like an angel's eyes And a smile Kinda like a pearl To my mind She's my kind of girl Pretty little face That face just knocks me off my feet Pretty little feet She's really sweet enough to eat She looks like an angel looks She cooks like an angel cooks And my mind in a kind of world To my mind She's my kind of girl Pretty little face That face just knocks me off of my feet Pretty little feet She's really sweet enough to eat She looks like an angel looks she even cooks like an angel cooks and my mind's in a kind of world to my mind she's my kind of girl and my heart's kind joy because she told me i'm her kind of boy
0: finally uh we exit the uh, selections from miss george martin painter in sound box set with the recently departed bernard cribbings and the wonderful hole in the ground so this is one of the sort of latter comedy recordings in, in that classic phase and and George bringing the best out of the artist and the material that he's got to work
1: with. Yeah, and you know, you would see that a lot with him up and down his career of taking an artist, Matt Monroe's a good example or Shirley Bassey or later America. Some of their heyday and he saves their career in a lot of ways happens with George. He is was highly skilled at being able to Uh, Help an artist find what's best for them. It might not be something portable that you could easily attempt with another artist with a different sound or a, a different level of skill sets. But he was very good at reading the particular player or songwriter or what have you and maximizing their moment.
0: So this really was a turning point in 1962, because I think it was in February, George met Brian Epstein, and the path
1: for the Beatles started to lay out. It did. It started to make sense. And, you know, a lot is made, rightly so, about the way that the Beatles come to him and how he's sort of reminded <laughs> about them later. But, you know, by the time George is is having that meeting, EMI has passed on the Beatles. and. It's really through him and that meeting and and other circumstances, they get a second chance. And I think we're all in his debt because, of course, (laughs) people for centuries will benefit from the beauty and the promise that is created about the Beatles. But it sure doesn't happen. And it certainly doesn't happen the same way without George Martin.
0: From hearing some of the selections in this set, You've just got echoes that would feature later in the Beatles. You've got Matt Monroe and that sound that, that you could almost hear in in yesterday, Temperance Seven. You've got Honey Pie, The Humour and, and Adventure of Peter Sellers, George's wonderful orchestral work that came out in um, across the career, but of course the the, the yellow submarine material. So you can really see the groundwork and the foundations that were laid that really, really fully bloomed when he worked and evolved in the studio with the
1: Beatles. Absolutely you can. And you can hear him developing the skills and even a kind of tolerance, as you just said, for experimentation, for not prejudging what the artist is trying to do. Think about the level to which that will serve him well with the Beatles. When John Lennon walks in with Tomorrow Never Knows or I Am the Walrus or Paul and John have imagined the apocalypse at the end of a day in the life. Now they have the perfect producer who isn't going to necessarily poo-poo their ideas before they've even given them a chance to succeed. And on this wonderful new set, you can really hear the firmament the foundation for all of that great stuff to come it's all there you know it's not just an apprenticeship though a lot of that uh, music is lasting and and powerful and memorable for its own its own regard totally so just to say um
0: highly recommended and absolutely absorbing George Martin, painter in sound, pre-Beatles productions of classical influences. And I would heartily endorse reading Maximum Volume, The Life of Beatles producer George Martin, The Early Years, 1926 to 1966 by Ken in conjunction with this, because listening and
1: reading this is absolutely fascinating. It's just great fun and kudos to the folks for making this possible.
0: Before we go, anything to cover in terms of how people reach you and, and maybe what you're covering with Everything Fab Four podcast?
1: Gosh. So I have a website, everythingfab4.com, but um, I'm currently working on the life of another person who helped make the Beatles story possible, Mal Evans, their beloved roadie, and every man, man for all seasons, who helped make their lives and their music possible. So a lot of my time is going to that at the moment, but you know, like you, I I love telling stories via podcast. I guess that's our own pictures and sound that we're painting, right? Absolutely. Well, Ken, uh,
0: what a pleasure it is to speak with you. It's just fantastic to spend some time talking about George Martin and listening to his material and listening to material that um many of us may not be as familiar with, but you can really see the echoes later with the Beatles. So thank
1: you so much for your time, Ken. Absolutely. Thanks for all the good work you do.
11: I was digging his hole, hole in the ground, so big and sort around of it was, not there was I, digging it deep. It was flat at the bottom and the sides were steep. When along comes this bloke in a bowler, which he lifted and scratched his head. Whoa, he looked down the hole, poor demented soul, and he said, Do you mind if I make a suggestion? Don't dig it there, dig it elsewhere You're digging it round and it ought to be square The shape of it's wrong, it's much too long And you can't put a hole where a hole don't belong I ask, what a liberty, eh? Nearly bashed him right in the bowler well, there was I, stood in me oh, shovelling earth For all that I was worth I was, and there was him Standing up there so grand and official with his nose in the air So I gave him a look sort of sideways and I leaned on me shovel inside Whoa, I lit me a fag, and ebbing took a drag I replied, I just couldn't bear to dig it elsewhere I'm digging it round cos I don't want it squ- and if you disagree, it doesn't bother me That's the place where the hole's gonna be Well, there we were, discussing this hole Hole in the ground, so big and sold sort around of it was It's not there now, the ground's all flat And beneath it is the blow in the bowler hat
0: And that's that